Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. It's always good in the podcast where you start off by apologizing to your guest. The guest on the line right now on House of Strauss is Sherman Alexi, the famous poet, the famous writer, the famous radio personality, a man with such an illustrious career that I feel very insecure because I've not read all of his works, but thank God he really loves basketball. So maybe we can pivot to that. How well, you we doing, can talk Sherman? about that the whole time if you want. We can talk about Indian basketball, talk about the history of Indian basketball. Yeah. I'm I'm very curious about that. I'm I'm sure. You you know, there is some sort of quote, and I'm going to butcher it, from uh, the writer uh, Dawadoff. I'm trying to even remember what his first name is. But he he wrote that book, Collisions, Low Crossers. He was embedded with the New York Jets under Rex Ryan. It's a fascinating book. I haven't read that one. I recommend it highly to people. He got an uncommon level of access, and it's from the perspective of a New Yorker-level writer who has this insight that we just have no insight, basically. And he said something to the effect of, is there anything Americans care more about but know less than about than than NFL football? Um, you know, which is an interesting one. And and I've I've since brought that one up and people would say COVID or they would try to replace it. Maybe politics might get in there right now. You could make the argument. I, I feel a little bit like that when it comes to Native American life in America. Like I, I feel fascinated by okay what the hell happens on a reservation what's it like you grew up on a reservation mm-hmm. um but i know i know absolutely nothing i've got this weird sort of interest plus massive knowledge gap and i wonder if that's something you run into a lot of the time of people just having the interest but having just nothing in terms of knowledge i think the comparison to the nfl is perfect because Native Americans are wildly popular in the culture, uh, especially among the left for our supposed environmentalism and our status as epic victims, but also among the right for the notion of this libertarian rebellion against the United States government. So it's the warrior peacenik or, or the shaman with a bow and arrow that really goes across the spectrum that everybody romanticizes us in one form or another, but don't ever think of us as just plain human beings and Americans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going so far as to stupidly uh, Google Street View, the reservation you grew up on in, in Washington. And halfway through, I was just going, what, what, what am I doing? What am I going to learn doing this? <laughs> Have you ever street viewed anybody else? I mean, not really, which is – well, no, I street view things all the time. It's a cool way to just get a cursory glance at a place. But yeah. I, I – you know, halfway through, I'm going, OK, this th- – there's nothing about what I'm watching or what I'm seeing that's blowing my mind. You know, there are houses, there's some nature. I'm not learning any deep, deep truth 
about Sherman's upbringing. Um, but maybe you can you can fill in some blanks. You had an unusual upbringing. It seemed like you, from what I've read um, and saw in the Bill Moyers interview, you sort of grew up. You grew up a little bit on the reservation, a little bit outside of it. Well, I, I grew up on the reservation. I lived there full time until I graduated high school, and then I lived there part-time during college, like many college kids do. But during high school, I commuted off the res. I still live there, but I commuted off the res to the white farm town high school on the border, 22 miles away, because it was far superior. It was a much better school, and I knew I had a better chance of getting to college if I went to a better high school. So I wrote a novel about this, the fictional version of it, called The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, where, Mm. you know, I did feel like that, that uh, going from the res to that white town every day, five days a week, sometimes seven, felt like I was completely changing my identity from one place to another. And all these years later, I realized that, I mean, I was something of an immigrant. I was immigrating mm. into the United States, even as an indigenous person. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's an odd realization. But back then, we were really separated uh, there was no Google Street View in 1972. We were very isolated from the culture, and there was no internet. We got two channels most of the time, and NBC if somebody held on to the rabbit ears. Mm. So we weren't a part of the culture, not really. And I didn't see any representations of us in the mainstream media. I mean, I, I love the Indians they showed because they were always warriors and heroes. Uh, so in a sense... I saw only representations of Indians as horseback heroes, superheroes, but it had nothing mm. to do with the way we actually lived our lives. And I grew up in extreme poverty. Uh, my parents were both alcoholics. My mom sobered up. My dad never did. Uh, a lot of social ills around us, you know, violence and suicide and, and addiction. And in the midst of all that, this incredible culture of storytelling and beauty and and worship of nature and and the sense that God is in everything and everywhere uh, and dancing and singing and funny. I mean, Indians are the funniest people on the planet. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. one of the biggest misconceptions about us. It's a very story, very joke oriented culture, each individual tribe and then in general. So uh, I grew up in hilarious poverty. Mm. You know, um, you also wrote, the screenplay for Smoke Signals, and when I was watching that, I was wondering if the character of Thomas, uh, this uh, this guy in the res who doesn't necessarily fit in and in a way is trying to figure out how to be an Indian from watching Dances with Wolves and has some artistic uh, sensibilities. Is that guy you in a way or is that a character you wrote? Uh, Thomas Spills the Fire is me, the Native American geek. Uh, <laughs> which, which is, uh, maybe not so unusual now, but you know, when the movie came out in 1998 and when I wrote the story it's based on in 1993, the idea of a techie, geeky storytelling Indian guy was very unusual, uh, despite the fact that it's very common, uh, that sort of character on the res, that eccentric storyteller, but to represent it in pop culture uh, really shocked people. And he's still very beloved. The movie, even 25 years later, still is huge in Native American culture. Huge. Every year, I get dozens of photos of Indians who dress as Thomas and Victor from the movie or Lucy and Velma. Uh, and, you know, you walk into any gathering of Native Americans and First Nation Canadians 
any gathering, if you yelled out, hey, Victor, even if you were a white guy, everybody be laughing because it's a common dialogue, a common part of the culture now. I mean, what do you make of how rare your movie is that there is this cultural fascination that you mentioned earlier with Native American culture, and yet there seem to be so few portrayals of what it what it's actually like. I mean, outside of, uh, I guess, uh, what's his face who does the sort of cowboy type movies and uh, Yosemite and uh, Wind River. <laughs> who I can't I can't remember his name. It's not coming to me. But other Sheridan. than that, there's not Taylor Sheridan. Sheridan. Which Sheridan, is, which is funny because one of the worst, uh, <laughs> one of the worst uh, cavalry soldiers for uh, Native Americans was Phil Sheridan. Uh, so <laughs> it might match yeah. up, but uh, well, one of the problems with that show is, I mean, I've only watched a little bit of it, but uh, very few of the Native characters are actually played by Native actors. Mm, so he's still yeah. relying on that old system of, well, if they're brown, then we can cast them. And, uh, I've, seen, I've I've seen you talk about that in interviews a little bit, where you can kind of pass for half the world, and how that's a that's a strange thing. I, I to be an extreme minority um, <laughs> within you know within the United States, and also to be conflated with being I don't know from anywhere, uh, ambiguously ethnic. That's the term. Yeah. We also uh, refer to most of the goods at Target as that <laughs> ambiguously ethnic clothing. But yeah, I mean, and that didn't happen to me growing up. I mean, I grew up in eastern Washington, which is one of the widest and most conservative and monoculture John, places in the John United Stockton, States. John Stocktonville or, or Yes, region, exactly. Yeah. And and John Stockton fits in right well there. And uh, <laughs> uh, And so I was definitely Indian growing up, maybe Mexican sometimes. But once I started traveling with my book career, once I started leaving the confines of Eastern Washington State, I was shocked to discover that it could be half of anything. <laughs> and mm. and at the beginning, you know, in the early years, it really bothered me. I was so wrapped up in being perceived as Indian or perhaps my whole identity. I think it was James Baldwin who said that one of the reasons he left the United States, because everybody could only see him as a black man. And he couldn't decide how much of his self-identity was formed by racism or not. So mm. uh, how much of his own self-identity was formed by other people's perceptions of him. So when I went out into the world, I got offended by not being seen as Native because my whole identity was wrapped around being perceived as Native. Even the negative stuff, you know, even getting profile stopped or getting spit on when I was a kid or getting racial insults hurled at us. That was all part of my identity. So once I went out into the world and I wasn't immediately suspect as an Indian, I felt that absence of something negative. Yeah. You're just kind of floating. It's amorphous. You know? Yeah. Even, even if it's negative, it's at least anchoring you somewhere that makes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what is, for those who don't know about it, res ball? Res basketball. Now, there have been a few famous articles over the years that perhaps people have read. There was one in Sports Illustrated back in the 90s about a uh, a Montana Indian basketball player named Jonathan Takes Enemy. I mean, mm. that's his name. Wouldn't that be a great jersey? I, I bet that's that fantastic. would So LeBron and Luca <laughs> Takes Enemy on the <laughs> back of the jersey. Anything the, it's better than anything the XFL came up with when they were doing <laughs> the nicknames. Yeah, and... uh so the story of Indian ball, there's these amazing players, incredible players, usually from Montana. Montana is really the hotbed of native basketball who 
play this game called res ball, which is, uh, in a sense is, uh, the Bo Kimball, uh, uh, LMU era, uh, with defense. Mm. <laughs> so it's yeah. high scoring, high pressing, full court ball, fast, you know, long range shooting long before there was a three point line. And, uh, that game, that particular style of game is at every level from the highest levels of high school ball down to fourth graders on reservations playing that type of basketball. And, and wait, was this always the case? Is this something you were aware of when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. My dad was a ball player. I mean, so I grew up around my dad, all my uncles. Everybody was a ball player. But were you aware that you had this different style or there was this different oh, style? You know, you know, the first time I realized what our basketball was like was when I, on a Saturday afternoon, they piped in some time delayed ABA game uh, mm. with the red, white and blue ball. And I realized, oh, my gosh, ABA ball is like Indian ball. <laughs> <laughs> Do you attribute anything to that? Is that just some sort of accident of history? that the style would be so much would be so much different. You see these things, you see these things happen in soccer where these different nations have different approaches. The Italian game is more defensive and kind of uh you know, I almost wouldn't expect that. I have no cultural explanation. You would think that the passionate Italians would be more about the offense, but no, it's grinding and it's defense. So, do you see that as an arbitrary um, an arbitrary outcome, or do you see that as related to something culturally? I think perhaps it has something to do with horseback, with uh, uh, cavalry fighting, which is what natives mm. did and hunted on horseback as soon as the horse arrived. So you think about uh, a group of warriors out on the plains with these powerful, fast creatures riding them and making them faster and stronger by proxy. So I think in some sense... Uh, the early days of Indian basketball were very much informed by Great Plains hunting. Hmm. So, uh, and the mixing of tribal behavior, so strong teamwork, yeah. very strong teamwork, but there was always that best hunter out there. So it was everybody working hard and roller derby popped into my head for some reason where you have yeah, that, yeah. that, that, that runner, that scorer. So in that sense, it was a team working to get their best shooter, the shot. I love stuff like that. I love, um, these cultural can, how it can be, ha have old origins. I know, um, people wonder why the Kalinjin tribe in Kenya produces the best marathoners and the going theory. And it's only a theory. We can't know for sure is that they had a tradition of cattle rustling back in the day as a tribe. So you've got to drive the cattle for long distances um, or you get caught and the outcome's not so great if you get caught. And that that's one of the theories as to why they're the best in the world. And you, you see things like that. Also, um, I think uh, Rafe Bartholomew uh, wrote about the Philippines tradition of basketball and how that's so different. Um, and that's that's an excellent book. Um, I, I'd love to see a game one day. I'd love to, to visit, <laughs> to visit a game one day. And, oh, well, uh, uh, speaking of John Stockton and Spokane, uh, at the end of the month, my cousin holds, it might be the largest tournament in the country. There's 48 teams, all Indian basketball tournament in Spokane at John Stockton's facility in Spokane, his gym. Wow. And one of the big differences for my cousin's tournament is that every team you can only ha represent one tribe and every yeah. person on the team has to be an enrolled member of that tribe. So this is really tribe versus tribe.
and and mm. it's big it's huge so uh there will be hundreds of players there the best indian ball players in the country will be there and there will be a lot of sad stories there are a lot of sad stories one of the things is you know i've played across all levels i've i've been good enough my whole life not to get embarrassed on courts like i remember Michael Jordan talking about Dean Kane playing with him once in a Hollywood lot. And Michael Jordan's compliment for Dean Kane was that he knew how to get out of the way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always, I always known how to get out of the way, but I've played against some NBA players. I've played against Stockton and uh, I've played against Indian basketball players who were at least division one star level and probably beyond that, but they've never made it. What was playing with John Stockton like? Um, I remember seeing a clip of Baron Davis talking about going up against Stockton for the first time, and it was a humiliating experience for him. Um, <laughs> he, he he described it as it, it really had him shaking, wondering, hey, am I sorry? You know, Am I bad? Am I just bad at this? Uh, because Stockton was able to just see his mistakes and take advantage of it and do exactly what he wanted to do. Um, what was it like as a normie playing oh, against John Stockton? Yeah, I mean, if Baron Davis felt awful, imagine how a, a lowly player like me felt. Uh, you know, I went to Gonzaga for two years, so he would show up and play with the team, and I would sometimes play with the team. Uh, I lived in the same dorm as some of the basketball players, and and I was good enough to play when they needed a player. <laughs> you know, that was my qualification. And so I'd end up with Stockton sometimes. And there was one time I got extremely lucky and blocked a layup from behind. Mm. And he he was so angry and <laughs> and so angry. And uh, he demanded that I try to bring the ball up the court against him. Oh. And, and I couldn't dribble once. Uh, he was stripping me. Before, he 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 stripped me before I had the ball. Before the ball existed in my mind, he had already stolen it. It was astonishing, uh, and how strong he is. That was you know he's yeah. not a big guy at all. But That's what Baron Davis was talking about. That there's something about him when he's in person, he seems bigger and more forceful than what it looks like on television. Yeah, and it was it was you know I was on the court in Gonzaga. There were six ten guys, you know, two sixty six ten guys, and they weren't sending me flying like Stockton did. Uh, I mean, he pinballed me. Yeah. Well, what do you attribute that to? Is it do you felt like you could just anticipate what you were going to do, or was it just kind of a competitive viciousness? Why was it so hard? Why was it so hard to get past the man? Yeah, that psychic ability. Now, I, I think it's easier to see on offense, right? A great passer, a great assist yeah. person, you know, like I just saw this morning another highlight of that Luca pass where he's trapped in the corner and threw it all the way across under the basket. And you see yeah. that and you think that dude is psychic. How did he do that? But we don't think about psychic ability on defense as much. The anticipation, the knowing where somebody is going to be. Yeah. And he did that. He, and and certainly I'm way down level of talent, but I experienced it. And and when a when a great player, when a pro player talks about what Stockton did, uh, I mean, he was a million miles ahead of me. And, you know, he was 
<laughs> not my, I mean, he's a million miles ahead of Baron Davis. So, but that, but, but that's what you want in person. I've had a few pickup games where I played with NBA players and I didn't like that they were going half speed. I wanted to be shocked by what it was like. I wanted them to seem different. You know, I, I once played a pickup game where most space was on my team and I was going, oh, hell yeah, we're going to win. We lost. We <laughs> lost the game. It was highly disappointing. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, that's hey. true. You want the best. You want the best. Yeah. And he, he does not care who he's playing against. I, 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 I'm sure if he was playing against third graders, you know, he would be sending the ball away like Bill Murray did in uh, Mountain <laughs> in Rushmore. He'd be blocking the crap out of grade schoolers. Well, that's also what you want. That's 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 a great that's a great story. Well, your mention of psychic defensive ability that gives us the proper segue. Hey, I've written about the Draymond situation uh we're saying we're talking after he's been suspended by Adam Silver um but you're saying is it your group chats your conversations people are heated other people have takes you have takes what's what's going on what's the take yeah, yeah Dray well the first the argument about Draymond was did he stomp him on purpose or how mm. purposeful was the stomp how hard was it <laughs> what degree of stompiness was there and and <laughs> Uh, so the big debate was about the degree of stompiness and, ah. uh, and, and, <laughs> and then, you know, and there's a lawyers in the bunch too. And I actually arguing against lawyers on this. And I said, well, mm. what about repeat offender? What about repeat offender? And then my <laughs> analogy was, you know, when somebody robs a bank 37 times in a row <laughs> and the bank gets robbed for the 38th time, I'm going to assume it was the same person. <laughs> well, that's effectively what the NBA was saying as far as past incidents inform their decision. I don't like it on a purely aesthetic level. I mean, this is this is my thing. And I said as much in what I wrote, but uh, I think often we get lost in the weeds on this and people start having these Talmudic arguments and looking at the granularity and they're talking like lawyers, but there's no Supreme Court. The, the NBA likes to act like it is. They yeah. like to act as though, well, this is the precedent. And there was, you know, uh, uh, there was uh, Stern versus there was Stern versus Nash in, you know, 2007. And this is the law that we have. But no, there, there's none. It's just the commissioner and he makes up the rule. And so I look at it from the perspective of is this what I want or is this not what I want? I'll tell you what I want. I want to watch the Warriors at full strength going against these kings who are really giving it to them. I want what could have been the best first round series we've ever seen. I don't want this. And even if I acknowledge that it is obviously primarily the fault of the ever incorrigible Draymond Green, um, I don't love this decision. I don't love suspensions in playoff games. I, I, I was surprised that he got suspended for a game. I thought getting kicked out of that game was going to be it. So I, I was shocked that they That's would mess the with thing. the competitive balance that much. Yep. Yep. I mean, maybe it's all about parody. Who knows? I I don't love it. You can call me a homer, although I certainly have a weird dynamic with the Warriors. I don't think that anybody could just say I'm a pom pom waver on their behalf. But I just want to as a fan, you know, I'm a I'm a normal casual fan. I'm rebranding as normal, Sherman. <laughs> rebranding as a I don't think anybody's going to buy that. <laughs> Okay. Oh, well, can I be can I be indulgent about this? Because one of the things that it, uh, precipitates our conversation is that I noticed you commenting on my newsletter and leaving very good comments. And at first, I was going, "Wait, is that 
is that Sherman Alexi? Like the Sherman Alexi? Like is that <laughs> is that who that is? And then I it, I I I am curious. We've never talked about it. Why are you drawn to my Substack? Fine, I'll ask it. I'll ask the self indulgent question. Oh, because you're super smart as a Aww. basketball writer, and then super smart as a writer. And that your blending of sports and culture and politics are all great. So it's the fact that you take sports and the world seriously. Huh. Maybe that's the elevator pitch. That's the elevator pitch I need. I'm going with I ask the questions others are afraid to ask in sports. That's a little bit more aggressive as a branding. But I but, think that's ser- That's what I mean by serious. Ah, uh, yeah. I just I want to be able to talk about whatever I'm thinking about. I'm a weirdo that way. And I don't like the idea of I mean, honestly, a lot of the articles for me, I don't know how your process is when you write, but it almost takes a few days and something's rattling around my head. And at a certain point, I almost have to surrender to it. I almost have to go when it's a controversial opinion. There's this moment where I often go. Oh, man, I guess I'm going to have to write this. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to. I mean, this isn't going to be great for me, but this is what's in my head. And this just seems to be part of the process. This this is part of the catharsis. And I just need to surrender to it and process it. Oh, it's very similar where you're scared of something that you're writing. Where you're yeah. scared of something that you're thinking. And I think the natural inclination of humans is to get along, right? To 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 mm. be the good desk to be the good guest at the dinner party. To yes, be the, yes. To be the interesting person who isn't too interesting. <laughs> and, mm. and and so the curse of wanting to be more interesting than you're supposed to be. And I think I have that disease, and I know you do. I read I remember the Nike article about the masculinity article. And oh, I, yeah, I was howling as I read that. And I thought, oh, man, this guy is courting danger. <laughs> well, my favorite part of writing that article or my favorite part of that one is just it's not the most eloquent part, but it's talking about the really cringe modern ads and just leveling with people and going, these aren't good. Can we just admit these aren't good? These are just bad. And it, there's no real there's no real cope there's no i think people can try to outsmart themselves and make the arguments are well you're old now so you think the things that are modern are bad it's like no i have a functioning brain i know something good from something bad there are things that i don't even like maybe ideologically that i can um at least see the artistic merit in but bad is bad and i that's my favorite part of the article because there's nothing smart about it it's just it's just honest this sucks it is what it is yeah and you know, as I read, they don't make ads for sports fans. Uh, mm. Sports ads aren't for sports fans uh, because I think otherwise you just have a highlight. You you know, yeah. uh, you'd have Luca making that pass and then you'd say, buy his shoes. <laughs> and, and we would watch that ad forever and ever. Uh, sports ads could be completely highlights of amazing plays or amazing mistakes and sports fans would love them. So, uh I, I think sports ads, they try to create poetry where it's unnecessary because the game itself is poetry. Yeah. I mean, they used to be better at it. I think maybe the best example of what you're talking about, those old Nike ads where 
it was just crazy ball handling and audio. I'm trying to even remember what that was called. It was kind of yeah. around that and one mixtape era. Yeah. Alan Iverson was such a, he wasn't Nike, but he was such a big force at that time. And it was just guys doing absurd dribble, dribble shit. And, um, just the, no sound to it other than the squeaks. And that, that was enough to be a phenomenon back then that people were into. And similar to what you're talking about, you're so right now to think about it. One of the best, Jordan ads is uh, man is it good it, it, there's this um kind of this crescendo there's this kind of crescendo and you're watching all these young people around the world imitate the familiar Michael Jordan moves that you've seen over oh. and over again um and there that that in of, of itself is just so powerful and so simple and yet again that's all we need that's really all we need yeah, I mean, sports are dumb. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, do you think they're dumb? Okay, so okay, you're a thinky guy. You know, you're you're somebody who's written multiple books, who likes to see nuance. I I, I figured you as somebody who would say that. I, I know you've made the argument. I've seen you make the argument that sports are a form of art and you should be considered yeah. on the level of art. But you're also saying that they're dumb. So do you think that art is dumb? What are you saying here? Sherman? The game is complicated. The draw to the game is dumb. <laughs> Mm. Um, I, I mean, we want to see wins and losses. We want to, uh, so what, well, you know, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his sub stack. He's a baseball writer. Joe Pananski. Is that right? Oh, Posn- uh, Posnanski. Posna- yeah. He had a article this morning about numbers in baseball, about counting, which was great. Mm. He talked about the, the stats that we think matter now, the advanced stats, but the simple ones too, maybe, maybe ERA doesn't measure as much as other stats do now advanced stats but he talked about all the numbers the counting is the beautiful thing and huh. and it's so simple right and when i think about basketball it's the same way i think i commented once i don't know if i was on your post but uh, about the mvp argument about between mm. embed and, and joker and giannis it becomes the and, mvp it becomes the mvp argument argument it gets very meta at this point yeah how do you argue that how do you argue that how do you and i think and i think like when Kendrick Perkins talked about it and he brought in race into it, which is part of it, certainly. But what I sensed in him was this nostalgia for the days when talent was only measured by the eye test and points per game. Mm, you know, he's a, he, even though that's not the best way to do it, there's a certain romance to that that I can, I can respect. Yes. And that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're all dumb. I do it too. We're we're all dumb when we do that because it is more complicated. And and I yeah. think uh, now when we start talking about it now, we're getting complicated. We're going through all sorts of nuance and ideas and historical illusions. And but but when it comes down to it, it's really primal. And yeah. and I, I think ads miss that. Oh yeah, no. There's a visceral. Yeah, there's something to it. It's war. It's simulated war. You know that's. Uh, that that is what we're doing, basically. And there's something limbic about the whole process. But it's also fascinating because it's a man-made creation that we don't know everything about. Um, we don't completely know who's the best 
Um, we know that LeBron James is better than the guy at the end of the bench. I mean, some things are just objective, but some things aren't, and it gets rather complicated. How good is Kawhi Leonard? I mean, I don't know. He kind of half participates, and then in the playoffs is suddenly better than everybody, maybe. So what does that mean? And there are just endless jumping off points and uh, analysis and just so many avenues that one can waste their time with. But um, yeah, it's a dumb thing that we get really smart about because uh we we because it's draws so it's it, what was it what was it at Annie Hall Woody Allen was talking about about uh, how you intellectuals can't understand that it's physical it's physical yeah and I'm laughing because we we get some of the weeds with it and it's still dumb like you know you're talking about Kawhi <laughs> barely being on the court right but but we'll <laughs> basketball fans we'll bring that down to like Gordon Haywood would he we'd argue like would he be the 45th best player in the league if he could stay on the mm. court or the 52nd best player <laughs> oh, and I love the performance I love the performance of it on the sports talk shows which I mean this is like what you're talking about where art should be respected the athletic should be respected as a form of art I feel the same way about the dumb sports talk shows because they're so theatrical and performative and the way that they will i mean the most beautiful thing about them is something that i could never do and i think that some of my friends in the industry who were really uh brainy guys who were good on tv but they couldn't do this thing of utterly committing like the way that some of these guys on the sports talk shows have you really thinking that they that they think that this argument about this sport is the most important thing in the world right now the utter sincerity feigned possibly but this whole i really care who your 43rd player ranking is and we need to have a debate about it that (laughs) thing that's easy to sneer at is also beautiful as a performance and it's something that i treasure yeah i mean i think probably Two thirds of my conversations, online conversations during the course of a day are arguments like this. I mean, we're still yeah. going on about Draymond. I, I just sent them a quote from Tom Ziller, my basketball chat group, that he wrote something good today about if Draymond didn't do it on purpose, why was he behaving like a wrestling heel for three minutes <laughs> while it was being decided? So I sent I... that quote. So this debate's going to matter. and It's going to matter even more when the game's going on and he's not there. I mean, the answer to that might be because he's a maniac. That's the other thing we do sometimes is we try to apply logic to an illogical, an illogical situation or an illogical outcome. Um, I felt a little bit like that where people were kind of sneering at the idea that the Warriors are getting screwed and they're going, yeah, yeah. Adam Silver screwing the Dynasty Warriors for the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, right. And I think, well, Adam Silver hasn't done many things correct in terms of marketing the league. <laughs> he might just be not good at this. I don't know. I'm not saying that he's out to screw the Warriors, but his his heuristic might not be the classic David Stern, I would prefer to see the Lakers versus the Lakers um, play against each other. Uh, Well, speaking of David Stern, uh, you're Sonics. (laughs) Oh, my God. There's a segue. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a Sonics fan? Were you a Sonics fan growing up in the state of Washington or did you move to Seattle and and come to them? Uh, I was a I was a I was a fan growing up, but, you know, we didn't have the games weren't on TV. So mm. my basketball fandom was really relegated to the box scores in the newspaper in the morning. That's one of the ceremonies my father and I had with each other is looking at the box scores over the over breakfast. 
Uh, that was one of the ways in which we showed our love for each other was was and then wow. we would quiz each other. So how many points did Jamal Wilkes score last night? Mm. And one of my dad's holy grails, the thing he wanted more than anything to see was when everybody on a roster scored in double figures. That was something that's that's interesting. That's uh, if you don't mind me saying a little spectrum, that's it's a very interesting thing to want. <laughs> well, I wouldn't doubt that my father and I are a little spectrum. So uh, I think I might have been diagnosed as that uh, if mm. they had been diagnosing that in earlier ages. I've since become somebody different. But as a kid. I can definitely see how I was uh, spectrum-y. Are you aware of um, Sarah Heppola, by the way, as a writer? Yes, yes. Um, I'm reading her memoir right now, and it's, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's an incredible memoir, but, and this is a crazy detour, um, but it's about her blackout drinking. And, but she writes with just such vividness about growing up and growing up in suburban Texas. It's almost like, it's almost like being in a Linklater movie when you're when you're reading it. But her father, um, you know, would write down the lottery numbers to every lottery that happened. And uh, this this is going nowhere as an example, Sherman, at all. Like it's not leading anywhere other than I love little details like that about people's fathers and and quirks. And I, you know, it's just something that I I don't know if I can I don't know how to relate to it necessarily, but I find that kind of thing fascinating. Well, no, that actually does. I mean, as you were talking, writing, my dad, my dad collected magazines. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we were poor, but he collected magazines. And the two magazines he collected, like every issue, was Sports Illustrated and People magazine. Uh, mm. Every issue. He also, he smoked cigars, cheap ones in those little plastic tubes. He kept those, the empty tubes huh. he kept. And huh. so I sort of inherited that collective spirit that obsessive thing so but we were poor so i collected rocks and i would change Mm -hmm. well it's all red rocks now or i would look for rocks that looked like they had letters in the patterns Mm. like this is an a rock a b rock a c rock and then i would look for rocks that looked like they had heart patterns so i was always categorizing everything yeah my son's kind of into that right now that's definitely something that he sometimes comes home. I try not to talk about him. I don't want to become one of these people who they, they you know, because that happens with writers because they're such narcissists that they'll do the inevitable thing and then conflate their interests with their children in the audience's interest in your child. Um, but yeah, it is kind of funny. He'll come home with rocks in his pocket that he uh, that he collected at school. Um, and, you know, I, I'm kind of wondering uh, I don't have a. I didn't have the best relationship with my father. It's it's good enough to where he will probably listen to this podcast. I'll have to be careful in how I phrase things. But um, he was a big NBA fan. He was a big Knicks fan, and it almost felt like those moments were very pure, and they almost felt like a way, as you're saying, to um, to connect. And um, do you think that informed at all your fandom? I think for me, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to get to where I eventually got to without that being this uh, this portal in the relationship that was otherwise very fraught. Yeah, I can't separate my love for basketball from my love for my father. There, yeah. There's no separation. It, they're woven together. They have the same DNA. Yeah, it's um, I think that there's something there's something to that. And that's something that 
I don't know. There's a little bit of uh, that tradition of father to son passing sports down that you don't you don't see talked about as much. But that is generally how we get it. And it's it's interesting to me that the younger generations right now are turning against sports. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. You might even think it's a good thing. I'll throw that at you. If we're just doing random topics. Is it good or bad that the young people aren't into sports like we were into sports? Well, you know, I said I don't talk about my kids very much, but I can say that my younger son was very good at baseball. And then one day he realized he was going to have to devote his whole life to it in order Mm. to continue playing. And he stopped. Uh, The one sport life is incredibly dangerous, I think. So. I think that obsessive quality has been damaging to youth and uh, damaging to the fun of the game. So, uh, I mean, I've been to AAU basketball tournaments and yeah. they kind of gross me out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting perspective right here. I didn't even think about this. Um Because sometimes what we're observing, we observe a trend and we don't think of it as a backlash to another trend. We just kind of observe the trend. Um you know, I, I thought it was really interesting. The conservative writer Christopher Caldwell, um, he in his book, he was making an argument that I wouldn't think a conservative would make, but he was he was making the point that feminism was in part a reaction to the hyper masculinity of the post World War II era, and that that era went too far in that direction, and it was just everything was kind of masculinized because they had won the big one, and it was well we got to give these traumatized ex soldiers the reins on everything in society, and if they decide to um, with eminent domain smash your house to pieces to build a concrete uh, this or that, then that's just what we're going to do, um, because that's kind of the attitude in the barracks. And, you know, he wrote that feminism of that era was was kind of was kind of a backlash to that. And so I'm now you have me wondering if the youth's turn against sports might be a reaction to how it almost became quasi professional at a very early age. And maybe it was too much pressure. And maybe that has something to do with the draw to video games and everything else. And it's not just I don't know, everybody getting lazy and sedentary. Yeah, I mean, because my kids also play video games and, you know, they have friends. And I think, you know, their online video game world is very collaborative Mm. and very private. Huh. What does that mean? Uh, You know, and, and, you know, my son has become real life friends with some of his video game friends. And I think it's something that just belongs to them. And parents have nothing to do with it. Uh, you can't have an overbearing video game father. Huh. That is also interesting. I don't know if it's healthy. I kind of feel like I kind of feel like you need that tension. You need more excuses for your father to be in your life. But if you're a kid, that's going to be quite tempting to be able to cordon off the parents and have your own your your own way to be competitive and collaborative. And since I'm not in that phase as a as a parent, that's something that makes complete sense as you explain it to me. But, you know, that's something that I haven't really thought about, that it's it's a way to do sports, but without the parents. Unfortunately, without the exercise as well. But, you know, exactly. With, without an apple or a banana now and again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, <laughs> I think there are so many more sources of damage for young people than there have ever been. 
uh, more mm. potential pitfalls without guidance. Uh, <laughs> at various points of my life, you know, I grew up in a very conservative part of the country, Indian and white, both conservative sides. And there was always the notion that, you know, in order to become a good man, to grow up to be a good man, you had to be afraid of your father just a little bit. Mm, yeah, that kind of severity. I mean, do you think that's true? Do you think there's something to that? I think there's something to be said for respecting the masculine yeah. and valuing the masculine. However, when that's expressed in positive ways. I think that at least at this stage, um, I'm a little bit more of the bad guy. I'm a little bit more of the bad cop. And that role seems natural and it seems easier for me. And I don't I don't want to scare my kids. I don't I don't, I'm not a very scary person. I don't think I could do it credibly. But I think it's not a bad thing if there's more of a sense that I'm there to uh, to I don't know get get a pound of flesh. No, that's not right. <laughs> uh, to 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 give consequences, to be the giver of consequences, and to be less affected by it, I think is is not such a not such a bad thing. And maybe in a different era, I would feel like I should be scarier. But it's but it's everything's like it's like everything's kind of a LARP in a way, kind of like your characters. Or uh, Thomas and Smoke Signals is in a way trying to figure out how to be an Indian from watching the media uh, without having knowing intrinsically how to do it. I kind of feel like anybody in any era is parenting according to the idea of, well, I think this is how it's supposed to be, but you don't you don't really know. Oh, not at all. I mean, I I, I don't have it. I think the place where I have the most self-doubt is as a parent. I mean, my my sons are now both young men; they're adults, and I still I, I still feel like I failed them in multiple ways, and and I hope <laughs> I know they love me. I love them, and I hope, uh, and we're we're good. I mean, there's no estrangement, but I hope uh, I hope they forgive me. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about how the way uh, the way they grew up versus the way you grew up? Is oh my gosh, that's very different. Oh my gosh, and I would assume no. there's a lot bundled <laughs> into that. Oh my gosh. Uh well I'm married to a native woman. She's uh Hidatsa Ho Chunk Potawatomi, uh all Midwest tribes. And I'm Spokane Cordelaine, Northwest Salmon tribes. So they're they're way Indian. <laughs> uh yeah. you know, the house is Indian. And but I mean they grew up in comfort. They grew up in the kind of privilege that Indian kids rarely have. Uh I mean, two white-collar, professional, highly successful Indian parents. Uh, it, it's a rare thing in any demographic, uh, but in, in exceedingly rare in the Native world. So, in some sense, they're, uh, <laughs> you know, they're 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 pilot projects, they're experiments, mm -hmm. they're 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 the new, and 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 they probably take it for granted because I mean, you any situation you're in seems normal. Uh, uh, I hope they don't. I, I think. I think they know enough about my wife and I's childhoods and the struggles we face that they're aware of how much fight there was to get them where there is. Mm. And while, you know, and also watching politically, and I, I mean, we're Native American and we face, and even us with our money and privilege still face various forms of racism that they can look at the world and see how other people, you know, how black men get treated, how, how, uh, immigrants get treated, how, how you know, Spanish-speaking immigrants get traded from Central and South America. So I think they can see and connect their 
minority status with the minority status of other people, regardless of how much money they have and how much privilege they might have. I think their empathy detectors are on high. You mentioned the Midwestern tribes. Um, I associate when I see when I see native people interviewed, the accent is often it's very thick Midwestern, but with a note of something else that I don't I, I don't know what gl- I, you know, I don't have the 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 vernacular of a linguist with diphthongs and glottal and, and whatever. But it, it's often very um, it's a very Midwestern tone. And I'm wondering, is that a very different accent than what you grew up with uh, in Washington? You know, what what is that accent? There is a thing called the Indian Reservation accent that we all have for some reason. (laughs) West of the Mississippi in the United States, the reservation accent from tribe to tribe sounds something like this. And we don't know Mm -hmm. why. I like to joke that it's our version of the Masonic Lodge secret handshake. You hear somebody (laughs) talking like this and you know they're from the res. Am, am I crazy to think that sounds a little Midwestern to me? You there's know, Midwestern in it. Midwestern? There's, a, there's like a little Bemidji in it. Uh, mm. There's also a little Canadian in it. And yeah. uh, some accents, I can hear a little Irish in it even, a little Irish lilt. So, uh, you know, I have no idea how that happened. Uh, yeah. Why reservation Indians all have a very similar accent. I'm fascinated by diaspora and how how cultures would have commonality before mass media is something that's so interesting to me. Um, I think about that with uh, Yiddish speakers back in the day uh, in the pale of settlement in Europe. I mean, how is there such commonality across the vast regions? Um, Do you think, do you perceive any sort of cross-pollination of cultures and native culture? You know, is there something more Midwestern about native cultures in the midwest or is it just totally compartmentalized well you have to go to reservations to find that i mean reservations Mm -hmm. are the heart and the center of the culture so once you get off reservations you're going to be facing a pan nativism where Mm -hmm. it's sort of a generic native culture with the sort of worship of nature the 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 the, the typical image you think about when you think about native americans and there's also where now if you based it completely on public perception you would think that a vast majority of native americans are leftist political activists <laughs> and that's not yeah. the case at all the 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 political spectrum is exactly the same as any other community so i think in some ways the common native expression of urban indians becomes leftist politics i mean that's that's something that makes you indian uh Hmm. but once you get into reservations you start getting into the specifics now every tribe's culture is based on geography so it's based on the exact geography where they're from so i'm a salmon indian and i'm lucky that i live in seattle because the tribes over here are also salmon tribes so i connect to that but let's say i lived in phoenix uh, how much of a Spokane salmon Indian would I be in Phoenix? There would be something missing, something incredibly large missing. So, one say, what is a salmon tribe? Forgive my ignorance. Uh, we call it. Uh, my my comparison is it's our Jesus fish. Huh. Jesus salmon is to us as Jesus is to Christians. 
the Ganesh of the water or am I being offensive? I have no, no idea. No, no, it's yeah, it's all of that. So ap- apply apply all the relevant <laughs> religious terms in your religion to ours and you'll get it. Uh the the object the, the sacred object might change, but the sacredness I mean, is the same. You could do a lot worse with a sacred animal than than salmon. I mean, there's a there's a romance to the salmon that um you know whether it's the the life cycle journey how delicious people find it i've never eaten salmon i've got a weird thing of a, like a fish allergy it's not very important to this conversation but it looks beautiful i mean it looks incredible um yeah you could you could do worse you could do worse than worshiping salmon yeah we we knew that all we were the first ones to know that <laughs> we <laughs> we were salmon before salmon were cool uh <laughs> So, yeah, so once you get outside the reservation itself, once you leave the geography, then you start becoming more generic. And that's not to say it's a bad thing. It's still people connecting through culture. That's where powwows come in, you know, where you have mm. this common set of cultural expectations and, and uh, means and norms expressed through the powwow, which is multi-tribal. Uh, yeah. But there are also specific ceremonies in each tribe, like uh, and people think it's all one culture. I remember at the beginning of my career, very early on in Philadelphia, there's always an Indian guy in the audience who's an Indian expert. There's always a white guy in the audience who thinks he's an expert on Indians. And this guy raised his hand and he asked me some question about the Navajo burial practices. And and mm. I said, I don't know. I'm not Navajo. And he said, well, you should. Uh, yeah. And yeah, no. Study up, Sherman. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, <laughs> Indian to Indian, I know Navajos. Some of my best friends are Navajos. That's only and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I like the idea of I, I like the idea of a scenario where you've offended the Navajos and are saying that exact phrase. <laughs> and and uh, uh, but you know I have more knowledge of Eastern Washington wheat farming than I do mm. of Navajo burial practices. Yeah, I mean that's again. It's I'm fascinated by how it's it's a community that is diaspora, but also compartmentalized, and it's why again, it's one of these topics where I have endless curiosity and scant knowledge. I just know know so little. And you know, di- it seems diaspora. Like that's an interesting thing. I realized something. This is a new thing that yeah. hit my head when you said diaspora right there. There are about 1.5 million of us who aren't in the diaspora. Yeah. Who did grow up in their tribal communities, who did grow up on their reservations, who were surrounded by multi-generations of their people. Like, when I was a kid, I shared meals with people who were the children of people who fought against the United States. Huh. <laughs> so, uh, I'm old enough to have known the children of people who killed cavalry soldiers. Uh, so... Uh, I don't consider myself in the diaspora, but yet there are people who are in the diaspora who were disconnected from their tribes, who have never lived in a tribal community, who have never been surrounded by their the yeah. multi-generations of their Indian family. I might be using diaspora wrong in this exact in this exact case just because this is one of these things it's hard to describe what Native American culture is in the United States, and especially for somebody like myself who knows so little. Um, and you know, this is a weird, this is a weird segue right here. This is a crazy segue. Um, but if I don't ask and I'll forget about it. Um, but I, I watched the interview you did, maybe it was a decade ago on Bill Moyers. And you mentioned that nine 11 radically altered, um, your 
perception of things and made you more open. It made you more open to hearing uh, alternate perspectives. And to me, that was a loose end that I needed I needed tied up. I, I wanted to know what you meant by it back then. And for all I know, you don't feel that way now. I have no idea. You know, I don't remember the point I was making, and I'm trying to, <laughs> I'll be honest. It will remain loose. The The end will remain loose. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, you know I, I know your audience members come from across the political spectrum, but I will say the election of Trump functioned in a way that may be similar. Huh. That that's at the beginning, it shut me down, you know, as a member of the left. I was furious and, and it coincided. I'm bipolar and it coincided with an extended manic episode, which mm. had its own paranoia, its own hallucinations, its own self-destructive thinking. And it blended right in with my Trump derangement. Uh, and once I got through all that, uh, I started having more and more empathy for my political opponents. I still think they're wrong by and large, not on everything, but on a lot of things. But I started seeing why they felt the way they did. Hmm. That I Do think you no, you continue. I don't want to interject. I want to I was just going point. to say that uh I mean I grew up surrounded by conservatives. Uh I have people I dearly love who voted for Trump twice. And I love them. So I I was able to, at that point, back then, I was able to, I turned my back on some of the people I love. And I've since returned to them. We've returned to each other. And so when I think about politics, I try to have that same feeling about the strangers in the world who voted for him. I fail often, but I try to have empathy, try to understand why. Why, why, why? And I hope they extend me the same courtesy because I'm sure they think I'm just as crazy because I voted for Biden. Um, may I ask who these people are in your life? You know, what what is their oh, background? Cousins, uh, siblings, uh, <laughs> uncles, aunts, uh, you know, all across the spectrum. I mean, my, my yeah. grandmother, my late grandmother, she I, she proudly sported an American Indians for Nixon uh, button. She was. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a collector's item right there. I, I, that would be, I, I, that would I used go to on have eBay. it it's somewhere somewhere in storage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I just wish um, in the general conversation, people uh, more people would internalize the following, and and it's this: it's that we're not actually soldiers in any particular war we're not going to affect the outcome i mean i have this the, ironically this might be different for people such as ourselves because you could say that you know we have a platform we can communicate we could change history probably not <laughs> but conceivably but you see so many people who are riled up like this and they have no influence on whatever is going to happen you just want those people to then go okay well if I'm not going to affect what's going to happen and this person in my family is not going to change what's going to happen either, um, even though this person wants something different to happen, then we might as well shrug and get along because we're not actually we're not actually doing anything here. You, you know, uh, I, I end up, you know, the 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 semi tiny bit of socialism in me pops up. And when I start thinking. I, I I do my best to measure things by economic class. 
And while I'm certainly uh, uh, way up there now, uh, you know, I'm privileged. I still try to think of congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, you know, it's, it's not, it's not big money, but it's enough money. And, uh, uh, I still try to think of the world in terms of class, the United States in terms of class. And I think poor people across the board, middle-class people across the board have far more in common, uh, with each other across race and culture than they do with people who make the real money. Well, speaking of that and, this is going to be a tough this is going to be a tough question to approach extemporaneously. This is going to be a, this is going to be a tricky one right here. But I'm going to take I'm going to take a shot at it. Um there's been all this conversation about white people becoming a minority and that becoming uh this this aspect this animating aspect of the Trump phenomenon and this idea of conservative white people becoming strangers in their own country a little bit. And I'm wondering, I mean, do you have thoughts on that from the native perspective? Is it a perspective of, um, no, that's not happening or a perspective of, ah, yeah, that's, you know, I, I know what that's like, or like, what are your thoughts on that, on that whole thing? Uh, you know, pretty much no matter where any Indian goes outside of the Indian communities, we're the only Indian in the room. I every Indian, if you know, if they don't live on the res, every Indian spends a significant time, spends significant time being the only Indian in the room. And 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 so we're the minority of the minorities. And and so I'm used to being that. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not threatened by that. Uh I like being unusual. So, uh, but that, but with that comes a sense of total powerlessness. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the jokes I like to tell is that no matter what else happens, I can feel good about being an Indian because we have absolutely no say in anything that happens anywhere. Mm. Uh, nothing is our fault whatsoever. Uh, so yeah. we never had power connected to our race, our culture, so I can understand why somebody who perceived themselves as having power because of their skin color or their rice might feel threatened by the loss of it. But anybody who feels that way, who feels like they're losing something because they're white, I don't think they had it to begin with. Mm. If you think yeah. you're losing power, you didn't have power. Hmm. I, I already feel a little bit guilty by asking you so many questions as though you're some emissary for all these different communities. Um, but it's it's hard. It's <laughs> yeah. like it's hard not to ask some of these questions. I mean, I'm I'm curious what your perception of gambling is. Because you talk about powerlessness, it seems like that is some little scrap of power that's been afforded to the reservation communities. Um I'm I'm looking at it through the context of sports. This is how we're going to tie it all back around. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable with the explosion of sports gambling. It's challenging some of my ideas of let adults do whatever they want I, I, because I don't know if I like the result, uh, the real result of it. And I'm wondering, what is your perspective on gambling? Big question. Uh, I, I'm – You know, the idea of having an NBA team in Las Vegas kind of grosses me out. Mm. I've been well, to Las Vegas. That's just because you want it back in Seattle. Let's be that's real. true. Uh, but 
but I've been to Las Vegas. Las Vegas kind of grosses me out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, Indian casinos, I, I see them as two things. You know, you look at the world and you try to hold opposing ideas. I, I see them as sovereignty, as I see uh, tribes gaining economic power and some economic security. Uh, but I also see it as complete assimilation into the most base kind of capitalism. I mean, mm. gambling produces nothing of value. Yeah. Yeah. There is no tangible value to gambling. It's all about emotion and it's all about vice. And, 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 uh, and even take the word vice out of it. It's just emotion and, and, and not, uh, it's not even as good as a bag of tortilla chips, right? <laughs> well, there, we say capitalism, but there are some forms of capitalism that I think are more conducive to building something or building yeah. something good. Gambling is, it's purely predatory. And yeah. in the sports context, a lot of people don't know this, but now that it's happening over your phone, they can lock you out with precision if they think you're you're too good. And you don't have to be that good to be too good. So the game is, I mean, it is rigged. It is completely rigged. I know people will go like, oh, no shit, of course. But I don't think people get it that you could just be somebody who wins regularly four-figure amounts uh, in sports – and you're going to get locked out. I and mean, Ryan Glassbeagle, of the New York Post, who's been on this podcast, he's locked out again and again. He's just a pretty smart guy who watches sports. So then, you, you know, you you make a conclusion based off that. It's really just, you know, a way to get you to get you to lose, and that's what they're pitching you on right now. All the various uh, sports leagues, uh, they want you to be interested in their product uh, so you can become a gambling addict. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, there is a part of me that goes, it's a free country. It's what people want to do. Um, maybe it's worse if there's a black market. But then – and I think I'm probably going to write on this. There's part of me going, I don't know. A, a big plank – I'm not sure what my ideology is, but what factors heavily in it is this idea of how did that work outism. And when something happens, I, I look at it and I, I, it's amazing to me that many people don't. It's amazing to me that many people look at when laws are implemented um, and it's just about whatever they felt going in. There's no, OK, so this worked or OK, so this didn't. Um, and so far, the how did that work out is test on gambling to me is getting a little bit a little bit shaky. And if I read more and more instances of it turning out not so great for people. I think I'm going to come to the conclusion that I kind of wished that it had stayed this um, quasi-illegal vice that we weren't prosecuting heavily, but was in the shadows as opposed to being out in the open. <laughs> well, when I think about it in terms of Indian casinos, I mean, we're not running the casinos. We are mm. partnered with gambling corporations. The machines uh are partnered with gambling corporations often international gam you know the euphemism right international gambling organizations <laughs> which Wait, are you talking about is that mafia what is that <laughs> who is that international gambling operations uh you know i think gambling you necessarily get involved with some pretty iffy capitalists worldwide and yeah. and uh are we going to measure ourselves by who we're in business with? I mean, it's hard to imagine growing up and that that being what what a moral upstanding person would want to do. 
right? Yeah. I don't hear many. I don't hear many kids going. I want to grow up to run a casino. That's what I want. That's what I'm into. <laughs> so and I want to do it to make people happy. That's 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 what I'm all about. I think Indian casinos are a a a powerful expression of tribal sovereignty, and I think they're capitalist assimilation. I think they're both. Yeah. Well, and you know, I don't totally know how it works out on the reservations. I have a slightly different perspective on Las Vegas than you do. I love going to Las Vegas. I love NBA Summer League powerfully. I wouldn't want everywhere to be like Las Vegas. Mm. That's the perspective. I enjoy a weekend in Las Vegas. I enjoy the kitsch. I enjoy the garishness. I enjoy how it's it's maybe the most American place. Uh, it's it's America distilled for all its ills and all its all its benefits. I don't want every place to be like Las Vegas. And if the result of widespread legalized gambling is the Las Vegasification of everything, even though I love Las Vegas, that's not something I want. Ah, uh, that makes sense. And this makes me think of you know the countries where the entire country, the whole island, is like a casino. So Macau? yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah. And then what what popped into my head, sort of you know, when I'm here, I here I am worried about gambling and and capitalism and all that. I work in Hollywood. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's far worse than any, uh, or it's just as bad as any other corporation. At least I could imagine an idealist getting into such a venture, even if it is famous as being a den of iniquity. Um, the gambling, not so much. Well, let's let's end on that. What are you working on these days? What what you doing in Hollywood? Uh, well, nothing in Hollywood at the moment, but uh, I, I'm working on the sequel to my young adult novel, Fifteen Years Late. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a story of a small town basketball hero, uh, and but this time he gets recruited to go play in the city, and he actually ends up playing at a fictional version of Gonzaga Prep where John Stockton graduated mm. from. So he ends up playing uh, basketball there. Uh, working on my Stepsack newsletter where I publish poems and stories and essays, and sometimes veer into politics a little bit, not too much. Uh, can I say that I I enjoy your poems without knowing anything about poetry? And I I kind of went into it going I don't I don't know what that is about me that I'm a philistine on the poetry front. But part of me goes I don't I don't know how to interface with this. And then I was reading your poem and I was going Oh, this is very readable. This is very <laughs> this is very enjoyable. I'm a, I'm highly invested. I mean that's the best compliment possible for me is when a non-poetry reader says i like your poem uh and and I, I mean i write serious poems but i try to make them as accessible as possible and put all the literary architecture under the surface where if you want to read deeper and think about literary illusion and structure and meter and rhyme you can do that but i want it to have an immediate meaning it's like watching a basketball game where you can see the the pass and the shot and not necessarily see the play, <laughs> like the mm. screen that where it happens. Yeah. So uh, when you read my poetry, you can see whether the shot misses or makes. But if you <laughs> dig a little deeper, you're going to see uh, the pick and the and the and the roll. Do you? And maybe we'll close on this. Why do you think that po that poetry has fallen out of favor over time? I, I don't think it has. And I mean, huh. uh, you look at hip hop. Uh, ah, you know, uh, okay. so poetry gets expressed in all sorts of ways. Now that's sort of, you know, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, John Donne, uh, 
Keats and Yeats poetry, I think, is is not part of the pop culture like it used to be. Uh, yeah. But I think poetry still lives in other forms. It's just been rebranded. Rebranded. And and because, in fact, I would say that hip hop is far more formal and old school than uh, contemporary poetry is. I mean, you look at yeah. the internal rhyme uh, mm. that some of these poets use, like the string of rhymes where they'll have 17 words rhyme in a row inside of inside of lyrics and you think wow i mean that's shakespearean that's quality stuff and that kind of music that kind of rhyme doesn't happen in contemporary poetry much and i think i mean i write free verse with a lot of rhyme and and but i think one of the reasons that contemporary poetry is not as popular is because people can't memorize it as easily hmm yeah well i I want to say something smart in response to that, but I'm just absorbing it because it's something that I've I've not considered until right now, which is a good thing. Um, it's a good it's a good <laughs> thing in a conversation. Um, this has been great, man. Uh, thanks so much for for coming by. Do you have anything to plug beyond your Substack? Anything else that we should be looking out for? And your upcoming, I'm not sure when it will be complete, but the upcoming I, novel. Yeah, there's a novel's coming next year, but I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on my Substack newsletter. It's Sherman Alexi, and uh, uh, that's where I'm doing a, most of my new work is showing up there. And I'm really enjoying Substack. I mean, it's brought me to writers like you. I knew of you. I'd read pieces by you, but I hadn't, uh, you know, I, I read you all the time now. So you're you're makes you're me nervous. I don't want to let you down. I, know. I mean, <laughs> Substack has put people in my library in a way that wouldn't have happened before. Yeah, yeah. In you know, way now I'm thinking, um, and I'm screwing up the outro as I always do. I'm not being clean about it, but it it sort of made me better acquainted with what I like, if that makes sense. Just because in the past it was a little bit more scattered. You know, I kind of prefer the past in a way. I liked picking up a New Yorker or a Sports Illustrated in the late 90s and early 2000s and not not knowing what I might find, but being very interested in what was ever whatever was in there. And then Twitter comes about and you're kind of just there's this inundation and it gets bad and toxic for all the reasons we can get into and but for some reason Substack is just a, it's a more efficient way. I find myself going, "Oh, I read this writer religiously, actually, and so there's something there that connects with me, and I like this other writer, and I kind of support him, and I want him to do well, but I don't find myself reading him, and I'm having those sorts of things happen where I don't know if that happens for you at all, where it's almost like, I like your general thing. you know. I felt that way about Hunter S. Thompson in a way where I like your whole, I like your whole deal. I don't know if I want to read a lot of your later work, but I like your thing. I'm, I'm into yeah. that. You know, one of my ceremonies back in the nineties, uh, in the early two thousands uh, is I'd go to a newsstand here in Seattle, Bulldog news, where they'd have 300 magazines available and I'd buy 30 of them. And then I'd come home and get in the bathtub and read magazines for hours. Ah, and so good. And I do that with Substack, except without the bathtub. Yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit more, more difficult there. But you know, uh, there's something to that, the the tactile nature of the mailman coming by, and I'm sounding very old, and that's fine. I reject, I reject feeling bad about sounding old in general. I don't like that. Um, you know what? It, but it was, it was so cool. It was so cool to know that there was a tactile thing, and you got to investigate it. 
but I'll take the next best thing and in some ways the more efficient thing, which is the digital version of it and getting an email and being excited about that. Well, this has been great, man. Um, good luck with your ventures. Thanks for stopping by. Next time we'll have to have you by and you know not grill you about a million different Native American topics. <laughs> well, I'm Native. That's who I am. <laughs> <laughs>